Recovery Elevator, episode 460. It's okay to not know what you want to do all the time. It's okay to not have just like this set out plan. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Chris, and I'm glad that you're here with us today. On today's episode, we have Carrie. She's 40 years old from my hometown of Williston, North Dakota, and she took her last drink on January 7th, 2016. Nice job, Carrie. I want to give a quick shout out to our chat host over in Cafe RE. Thank you for your dedication to the community and providing a space for us to share our experiences. You are the best. Before we get to the intro, let's hear from our sponsor, Exact Nature. Exact Nature's all-natural CBD-based products are specially formulated to help you lighten the load in recovery. Recently, I've been taking Exact Nature's Z's pills and sleeping so well. These products are 100% THC-free, and they can be a great tool for your recovery. Learn more at exactnature.com and use the promo code RE20 to receive a 20% discount on your order. That is RE20 at exactnature.com. This week, I want to talk about the friends we keep. If we rewind a couple years, you might remember a time in the world where certain things were a bit hard to come by, namely toilet paper. My wife was working from home, and one day while she was talking to her friend LB, my wife made a comment about our diminishing stock, wondering where we were going to get more. Remember, this was a time when the shelves were empty all over the country. Well, LB is a really good friend, and inside of 24 hours, she swooped in and rescued our rears with a much-needed resupply. She's the type of person who's prepared, even in the toughest of times. Since then, she's bought my wife a sign that hangs in our bathroom today that says, Text if you need TP. LB has been an amazing friend of my wife and a blessing to our family, for more reasons than her willingness to share toiletries. Through Amy's growth and her faith, through the passing of my brother, the worst of my act of addiction, our separation and reconciliation, and everything in between, she's been a listening ear, a shoulder to cry on, a supporter, a cheerleader, and a voice of reason and accountability. We all need an LB in our lives. I don't know if she'll listen to this, but in case she is, we love you, sister, and appreciate all that you've done for us. I'm going to tell this to her anyway, because it's important to let people know what they mean to you. My friendships have been one of the greatest resources in my recovery. I'm the type of person who likes to experience life with people, and it's important that I have the right people in my corner. When I was newly sober, my wife and I were separated. Our relationship had been in turmoil for a long time, and obviously, things were not going great. I was complaining to a friend of mine about how I offered to pick up some groceries for AIM, and when I asked what she needed, she simply told me that she just wanted me to leave her alone. I got ready to tear her down to this friend of mine when he stopped me. Chris, you've been with this woman for a long time. You know what groceries she'll use. Why are you asking her what she needs? Is it maybe because you want to be her knight in shining armor? If you want to get her things, then just do it, but don't ask her to throw you a parade. By your own admission, you haven't been great. I'll let you vent if you need to, but I gotta call you out on this. Those are the people that I need in my life. The ones that will love me enough to tell me the truth when I need to hear it. That previous bit of advice, 
his version of do the next right thing and don't focus on the results, that changed my life. It's important that we surround ourselves with people who are going to enrich our lives. People who meet us where we are, but also challenge us and encourage us to grow. I once heard that we need five types of friends, and I found an article by Lifeway.com that outlines these five types. Robin's going to throw that in the show notes for us. Thank you, Robin. Okay, first on the list, the grace giver. This is the person who's going to show you love even if you've deviated from the path. We've all fallen short or messed up, and we need those people who are going to make sure that we feel loved no matter what. To remind us that we are not our mistakes. When I've been shown love in the light of my shortcomings, it's created a path forward, out of the muck that my head can get stuck in, and provided me with opportunities to grow. Next up, the truth teller. Sometimes we might not want a truth teller in our lives, but they are important. Like the example with my buddy before, I needed to have some reality dropped in my lap. A little disclaimer on this one. These days, there are plenty of people who are ready to quote-unquote, drop some truth, I feel like I constantly see or hear aggressive or belligerent statements followed up with, I'm just saying, it's true, you know. Delivering the truth like that does not make one an honorable person. When looking for the truth tellers in my life, I want people who are motivated by love rather than superiority. Someone who has my best interest in mind when they're helping to set me straight. After that, we have the couch counselor. These are the people who open their doors to you and sit down for those long conversations. They hear you out and help you walk through whatever you have going on in your life. I've got some guys locally that I try to get together with from time to time. Usually we're cooking food or helping one another with some sort of a project, but it's that extended time together that gives us a chance to dig into our lives. I've got a few recovery friends that aren't physically near me, but also fit into that category. These are the ones that will listen to a 20-minute Marco Polo video message and give a thoughtful reply back. Then we have the burden bearer. It's not a requirement, but I feel like these people are usually pretty good at giving hugs too. This is someone we can go to when we're in it. Whether something bad has happened, maybe we've experienced a loss, or we're just having a rough day, they instinctively know how to hold us in that space and to let us know that it's okay. They can bring peace and a glimmer of hope to a dark time. Finally, the secret sharer. This is the person who, without judgment, knows everything about us. The little things, like how we sweated through two shirts and tore a hole in our pants during a job interview, or the big stuff, like how we've handled the hardest moments in our life. We know that they are a safe place, so we don't have to keep it all inside. It's okay for us to be 100% our true and authentic selves. My friendships and sobriety have been pretty amazing. I've had a lot of people step up in ways that I didn't expect, and I've also met some of the best people on the planet in recovery. My life wouldn't be the same without them. Take a look at the people that you have in your life. Do you think that you have someone that fits into each of these categories? When was the last time you let them know what they mean to you? Let this be a reminder to tell someone that you love them and that you're grateful for them. Like I said in the beginning, I doubt my wife's friend LB will hear this, but I'm going to reach out anyway. I think I'll be sending a few text messages this week just to let people know how I feel. Again, I like to do life with people. I've gone through periods where I've closed myself off to the people around me. 
I think specifically about the last nine months of my active addiction. I'm writing this intro on the seventh anniversary of my brother's death, and that was the event that sent me into that final spiral. I've done the research. The evidence is out there on how things will work out for me when I go at it alone. There's nothing about that phase of my life that I want to relive. If you find yourself today feeling like you're alone, I promise you, you're not. Your people are out there. It can be in a recovery community, a spiritual group, a fitness group, or even old friends that you haven't connected with in a while. I love the way Odette says it. Together is always better. Stick around after our interview with Carrie, and we'll talk about how we can show up. It's great to have these friends in our lives, but it's just as important to be giving back. Before we get to the interview with Carrie, let's hear from our sponsor, BetterHelp. Team RE. December is here, and so is the season of gift giving. In recovery, we learn that we are worthy. We are worthy of love, we are worthy of connection, and we are worthy of understanding and defining our needs. So, when it comes to gift giving, do you add yourself to your gift list? Why not, right? In taking care of yourself, you allow yourself to show up the way you want to show up. In taking care of yourself, you allow yourself to get help when it comes to meeting your needs. You can start therapy as a gift to yourself. You can go for daily walks. You can go get a manicure. There are so many ways that you can give yourself the gift of love. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. In the season of giving, give yourself what you need with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com elevator today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash elevator. Recovery Elevator, please help me welcome Carrie to the show. Carrie, how you doing today? I am good. I'm excited to have you here. Listeners, this is exciting for me. Carrie and I went to went to school together. We haven't seen each other for years, and we were at a recovery conference a couple of weeks ago and yeah. re- reconnected. And I said, Hey, get your ass over here and let's do it. Let's do an interview. So here we are. And I don't want to see any comments about that. The last time I had a North Dakota, and there's a lot of feedback. Not negative, but it just observational. Boy, your accents really come out. So we don't have them. No, no accent whatsoever. (laughs) We'll let the audience be the judge of that. And uh, I know, right? They might disagree. Anyway, Carrie, can you let listeners know how long you've been sober? I have been sober. It will be eight years this January, actually. That's amazing. Coming up on eight years. That's super, super cool. Carrie, nice job. Um, when January hits, do you do anything uh, special on your milestones to celebrate? I, I don't really do much special, but I typically get a text from my cousin, Marcus, and he he reminds me of the exact date because uh, it's just not top of mind for me. Actually, July 31st, the year before, is when I quit drinking, and then um, it was January before I just completely have been done and sober and didn't dist- decide to dabble a little bit. So. July 31st, I remember. January is when he remembers. So he he reminds me, and it is a nice reminder. I think that's cool to have people in our lives that 
that that we know that it's as important to them as it is, as it is to us and to have those people in our corner so nice job marcus keep up the good work bud before we get into the interview can you let listeners know a little bit about yourself uh where you're from what you do for a living family and most importantly what do you like to do for fun uh absolutely so i am from same hometown as you williston actually i think um 2001 we graduated together even yeah buddy uh, yep so so yes that's putting us into middle age that's very dating us there with that date but <laughs> i am not married but i do have a significant other and we have been in each other's lives since i was about 21 actually so going on two decades and uh, we live together in Williston and we are raising four kids. We are a mixed family and our youngest is three. So they range from 12 to three. So it's 12, 11, eight, and um, three. The boys are the bookends. The girls are in the middle, which makes it real interesting uh, to have girls that close together. I work in town doing multiple things. Um, most recently, um, I decided that I was going to have a career being a firefighter of all things, <laughs> um, which stemmed from being an EMT and a nurse, actually. So for fun, I'm, I'm just really lucky that my work is fun. I, I train with a good group of people. And then my kids, those they're, they're just a lot of fun. Uh, the fun with them versus the fun for myself are different. But um, yeah, just anything really with them, anything active and that involves spending money. They're <laughs> they're really they're really drawn towards that. We're rebuilding actually a a Lund boat. My son and I that he bought. He got to get a four hundred dollar nineteen eighty four Lund boat named the Hustler by <laughs> previous owner. So that that's been fun. We're ripping it down to the studs and. Uh, making it a winter project. So very cool. It sounds like you are very busy. I know uh, working for a fire, de fire department in and of itself, any sort of emergency services puts some stress or excitement in life, however you want to look at it. Yeah, I think I think a little bit of both. Um, I'm I'm just actually going full time. So my shift um, will be 48 hours on 96 hours off. So I think those 48 hours um, will be a mix of getting rest, not getting rest and um, excitement and trauma and stress. And then uh, it'll be nice to have four days off to either spend with my kids. And um, we have a family business doing graphic design. So I can bounce in and do some jobs for that on the computer. And so, so yeah. Plenty to do for you, Carrie. Always busy. That's good. A life well lived. Well, with that, let's get into it. Let's do what we came here to do and talk a little bit about, uh, your journey with alcohol and into sobriety. So uh, wherever you think is a, appropriate to start, maybe childhood experiences or, or first introduction in, into substances, and then we'll we'll walk ourselves forward. I really did not personally start drinking until later into senior year, but my childhood was just, you know, riddled with um, experiences with alcohol. Um, I have a lot of alcoholic family members. Um, my dad is an alcoholic and a drug addict and, you know, some of my relatives and uh, coincidentally, my grandpa owned a liquor store. So we used to sneak in there all the time and it, back in the 80s, early 90s, it wasn't odd to see a five-year-old running around the liquor store, apparently, because I just remember looking at the tequila bottles on the shelf, and they had the worm in there, and he had suckers he would give out, and we used to hide them in the bottles. But regardless, you know, personally, it just it was, wasn't something that I was drawn to. Until the end of high school, I, I was pretty driven. Um, 
doing other things that I liked, whether it be sports or academics. And I just, I was always a people pleaser and it just didn't fit into, I, I think I was scared to get in trouble with drinking, you know, when I was younger, but then come senior year, I, I felt like, I suppose that I had I'd done everything right up till that point. So I could let loose and have some fun. And we were going to college and uh, I decided that I just would drink with my friends, go to the parties, go to the senior party, the senior bonfire, all of those things that are just, I guess, childhood experiences growing up um, for a lot of us in the Midwest. Yeah, I think I wanted to chalk my usage. It was it was similar. Like I didn't start till our senior year also. And I just wanted to to write it off as as capricious youth. It's like, oh, I'm just, you know, I'm doing Midwest things. Like you, like you said, you know, you mentioned being a a people pleaser and i know uh, uh, you're you're in good company with me and and with the rest of the audience a uh, bulk <laughs> of our audience with that can come a lot of anxiety just trying to to get a a feel for the room or a feel for the situation and and figuring figuring out what our role is to try to like how can i make things right if there's some any sort of tension with your introduction into you know starting to experiment and drink a little bit did you did you notice like the interplay between, all right, if I have some drinks, how those tendencies start to feel inside? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, maybe at the time I didn't realize like how much of a stress and anxiety reliever it really was just, just because I, that pressure of pleasing people, I, I just grew up with it. I'm the oldest of all of, um, of three kids. And like I said, my dad uh, was an alcoholic and an addict and he wasn't, he, my parents were married uh, through my whole childhood and up until I was in college actually. And we didn't really, we didn't really know because my dad didn't drink at home. It was just very sporadic and stuff like that, that, that it was such a problem. You know, I feel like a lot of things back then were more hidden than they are now. There isn't so much talking, especially it in the 80s and 90s about okay your dad's sick you know it was it was all hidden and i think even the anxiety from that in our family just it was it was just so apparent after i got sober how much stress we had holding our stuff together how much stress my mom had trying to hold it together and the anxiety and things like that and just trying to keep it all together and we don't have any problems and we're good to go which just growing up, it just it got worse and worse and worse. So yeah, drinking definitely, it was just like, oh, I can breathe. You know, I, my only, my only goal is to relax and have fun. <laughs> yeah. It worked. It really worked. <laughs> I think that's a, for me, that was a very important distinction. Like as I started to work my recovery to, to realize that that's, that's what alcohol was for me was a tool. I wanted to chalk it up to doing the quote unquote normal thing or just just fitting in i'm just hey i'm just hanging out other people are doing it. it's not a big deal but just because of my makeup and the situations i'd been through whatever it absolutely i was like whole oh, like i felt my shoulders drop and and i wanted that i wanted that again because it kind of turned that the the it turned that thinking mind off yes yes i would definitely definitely agree with that so uh, walking forward, starts to dabble towards the end of uh, high school, getting excited for college. Uh, when you went to college, what did uh, what did that behavior look like there? Well, you know, I just went where the party was, actually. Uh, it, we just never stopped. From senior year on, we never stopped. And that was that was what we did. Um, there was some differentiation, I guess, between my friends that I would say didn't have a problem versus uh, those of us that did or would eventually have a problem, you know, 
it was it was all the excuses of okay well we're just partying we're having fun in college okay i'm not going to class <laughs> i'm not getting good grades you know i was a 4.0 and you know actually graduated senior year and was already done with my freshman and half my sophomore year of college and that, that was when i was 16 and then just nothing after that because it was i I mean, I always did everything well, and I guess I was just going to do that well. And when you're young like that, I feel like you can shuffle around to different friend groups and you can just write it off as just we're having fun. And, you know, I get to go see this friend and that friend. And I, I just I was floating around trying to forget about any sort of responsibility I ever had. And I could use the excuse of I was such a high achiever and I'm ahead of the game. I can relax. And it just it really did not ever didn't stop until I quit drinking eight years ago, that whole floating around and uh, finding, finding just a place to drink where it was accepted. And at the time, I just, I didn't even, I didn't even realize it. Yeah. I think we look for that confirmation bias, that, that shuffling around, trying to put ourselves in an environment where, where maybe we see someone who's a, at least equal or, or maybe what we, how we can quantify it as worse. So it's like, well, at least I'm not like, this guy or, or I didn't do the stuff that this gal did. Uh, yes. And it, yep. it, it normalizes that behavior for, for us and keeps us somewhere lower on this scale that we're creating in our minds. Yeah. And I actually, um, you know, my, my idea of an alcoholic and an addict was my dad and he, he did not drink all the time. And when he did though, the consequences were just so, uh, just unbelievable like oh i my truck is wrecked and it, oh it was two deer they ran out of the ditch at the same time and they smashed both sides of my vehicle it's like okay or i have a black eye oh that you know that guy he punched you know and it, it wasn't a lot but it was ridiculously horrible every time it happened so for me like the consequences of what i was doing just weren't enough to make it feel abnormal to me and you know, it didn't even matter that, well, shoot, my parents threw me in treatment when I was 19. And <laughs> that experience, well, of course, we were we were dabbling with drugs at that point. So that's what they were worried about, not the alcohol. And I got into treatment. And the deal with my dad was because he was an alcoholic that had been to treatment multiple times. He said, just go, just do this, just do this 30 days. If you're not addicted to meth or whatever, fine, great. But you'll have 30 days of knowledge, like go in there, learn what you need to learn. And then if you ever have problems down the road, you'll have these tools, which I mean, great sound advice. Like you'll have these tools, like go take a break from life for, you know, 30 days. And it's like, I, I did not want to be there at all. I did not think that, you know, a couple times dabbling in meth, you know, not, not once, not once. And you're addicted. My parents were obviously on that train, <laughs> not even once. I think they had a campaign or something in Montana, North Dakota, like meth, not even once. And <laughs> it, it luckily that, that never stuck for me. I mean, I was, I was horrible at it. Thank goodness. But in treatment, I just, even at 19 and only been drinking for a couple of years, of course, they recognized right away, the counselors, you know, let talk to me more about your drinking. We obviously know that, yes, you dabbled in this and dabbled in that on the drug side, and it, it you're probably fine. But they were trying to get through to me that the way we were drinking in college just was was not okay. And I mean, I wouldn't listen. So I did my 30 days, got back out, and it was, oh, I'm not doing meth, so we'll just keep drinking. That's fine. But it was accepted, you know? Yeah. It, it's It's just booze. 
Yeah, that's the tough part. It's, yeah, especially that age. It's just it's what we it's what we did. It's what we what yeah. we did, and and to not do it would be absolute counterculture, and that's that's hard to do. Plus, it's also it's it's helping us out. Yes, it it really really did, and I guess in that part of my life too, is my parents decided around that time, uh, a little bit later that they were getting a divorce and my sisters were at home. I was gone, which eventually within that year, I had moved back to Williston and then both of my sisters were gone and my parents' divorce just really was not the greatest anyway. So then I had another excuse to drink, you know, the, it just very, very typical reasons of why I drink, drink because you're happy, drink because you're sad, drink because your dog died, drink because you stubbed your toe, you know? just, just any excuse. And, um, yeah, it just, it, it just continued that way for a very, very, very long time. Yeah. There's always something there's, yep. there's always that reason. And, and when we, when we get to that point in our relationship with alcohol, that we're so, that we have such a need for it, I guess there's a word for that when we're addicted, you know, our mind will go to any length to, to protect that relationship and, and to create uh normalcy around it because it's again, you know, it's a, it, it's become a tool. It's serving something for us. It's, it's relieving that tension. So at this point, you know, we're what late teens, early twenties, besides being sent to rehab, were there any other sort of consequences, either be they legal or financial or, or even with, with friends or peers, was anybody trying to, to raise any sort of red flags to you? Like, Hey, Carrie, maybe you want to check this out, like outside of your parents. It, yeah. I mean, I got a DUI. And subsequent ones after that. I mean, I think, I think four in total, not all driving, you know, in your, in the alcoholic brain of, I'm going to normalize this, you know, the two driving um, or whatever, when you're sleeping in your car or whatever, the actual physical control, I think they call it. Mm-hmm. Those don't count. I wasn't driving, you know, <laughs> as a judge so kindly pointed out to me, <laughs> well, how did you get out in the middle of nowhere on that gravel road? <laughs> Drunk. <laughs> none of your business your honor (laughs) but i wasn't driving i was sleeping when you found me but even that even that was just one of those things where oh it could happen to anyone and i got that response on my first ui from a lot of people i was i i really don't think i even let anybody know right away because i was just really really good at hiding it i was really good at hiding everything come to find out you know later now in my sobriety journey that that was a lot of the reason why I was drinking. I had things that I wanted to do in the way I wanted to live my life. And it it wasn't the stereotypical go to school, go to college, get married, have kids, white picket fence stuff. You know, I had so many things that I wanted to do. And I don't know if I was embarrassed about it or just not, not as strong um, in my convictions as I am now to just tell people, this is what I'm doing. This is what I want to do. So I look at it now and I'm like, why was I being so sneaky about things? Well, I was sneaky about drinking and any trouble I got in. So it didn't really pop up any red flags. And it's it it was just a normal people pleasing, again, type of thing. I'm not going to tell anyone what I'm doing because I don't want to disappoint them. Mm-hmm. Even if I even if I like what I'm doing on the good side of things, you know, I'm going to go and I fly planes and get my pilot's license. I'm going to go be an EMT. I'm going to go to school for this, that, the other, or I just don't want to go to school and I want to work for a while. I just, I didn't tell people and I wasn't comfortable in my own skin. And so really I worked hard at um, any mistakes I made while drinking with my friends um, in relationships or otherwise in hiding it. And I would say too, 
with relationships, um, boyfriends, I, I, you know, I had long-term relationships there and when they ended, it wasn't, um, it wasn't ever not because of alcohol. I mean, that wasn't just the one thing relationships don't uh, a lot of times end over one thing, but it was a huge part of it. Like my significant other. Now we dated in our early twenties for five years. And that was a huge, huge part of the reason why our relationship ended was because of drinking. But there again, we hid that from people. We didn't want to admit it. We didn't want to admit that that was a fault. It was like, no, we're just going to go our separate ways. No, we really just might kill each other if we keep drinking and partying together. (laughs) You know? Yeah. That's a tough place to be, especially if we have these feelings internally, like we know where we want to go or what we want to be or the the things that we want to pursue. I mean, this is our life, right? This is, this is where I want to put my energy into, to not either not feel comfortable or to not have the strength, you know, with like, I say this with, without judgment, but to not be able to pursue that for whatever the reason that's Mm -hmm. a, I mean, that's a tough spot to be in internally. It can just, I think that could probably, probably lead to like a little bit of, not to be dramatic, but like a little bit of despair. Like what, what's the point? Like what the hell we even, like, why am I even doing this? Yes. Yes, for sure. In looking back too, it's um, realizing like, it's okay to not know what you want to do all the time. It's okay to not have just like this set out plan. And I think I felt a lot of pressure and anxiety that I was smart. Things did come easy for me. Um, I could do anything really. I mean, growing up and being younger, like things clicked and, you know, not, not in a bragging way. It's just things, things were easy for me. And I was interested in so many different things. So just not knowing what I wanted to do um, moving forward in life from teens to 20s to 30s, it, it just felt like a failure. And so I just bounced around all over. And it, it, in any friend group up here in the Midwest, <laughs> you can find alcohol or any other substance really to escape that. So we're, where are we at? We're, say, early 20s. Yep. That, so that went into the later 20s. Um, and then, um, so that's my significant other now. And we, uh, we ended up parting ways and, um, I, I was working with my mom with, um, a family business and, uh, you know, it was, it was just at that point, it felt like normalized drinking. Uh, it was happy hour after work, you know, have a few beers, go home, have a bottle of wine, go to bed, get up and do it all over again. You know, it was really monotonous. And I was I, I was friends with people that were a lot um, older than me, family, friends and stuff like that. I was just working and uh, making a living, basically. And then I got, was in a relationship and um, we decided that we were going to we were going to move away and we went to Alaska. So just running away from not knowing what to do. I don't know what to do. Let's go to Alaska, like the farthest place away you could possibly go. And we ended up um, having my first child and subsequently a second. And so, I mean, drinking slowed down at that point. And that was um, 28, 30-ish years old. But in between, you know, being pregnant and kids, it's just still we were drinking, but we were older. So it was normal to have beers after work. It was normal to have a couple of beers when we were home and we were parents now. So, you know, we have those stressors and this and that and the other and go figure that relationship didn't work. I mean, drinking was a part of that, but also I got into the relationship because we met while drinking and that's what we did to have fun was drinking. And then when it was time to grow up, it's, it was just this constant struggle of like, wait, who are you? 
and wait, I, I like you and you have a good heart and everything like that. But like, this is not where I want my life to go. And so, yeah, then we broke up and it was the every other weekend parenting. So there again, what am I going to do on my weekend off when I'm essentially a single mom with two kids and I don't know, I get my weekends off. Let's, let's party. <laughs> and I was back in Williston. So it was okay because that was my off time. Mm-hmm. Another excuse, you know, that's when I got to let, let, let my hair down. And, but there again, also running from the anxiety of it all of like feeling like I was a failure because now, now here I am, I've got these two kids. I'm not married. The relationship didn't work. I still don't know what I want to do with my life. And now I have two kids that I can screw up along the way. So yeah, that was, that was a hard time. That was just, um, it was good and it was bad. I was just floating, I guess. There was, wasn't anything extra about that time in my life. Cause there's a lot to do when you have two kids that are only shoot 16 months apart. But yeah, my, but then again, I was back with my family and my friends where it was just, it was, oh, we're normal drinking. Here we go. But every single night, that's the weird part about it. I feel like around here, people drinking every day, just, it just isn't strange. And then you go to other places and it it just doesn't quite happen like that for, for the mass of people, you know? Yeah. You know, first I want to comment on, you know, you talked about after you had the kids, um, when you guys were still married, like you, it felt like this, like, oh, like responsible drinking. Like we've crossed the, crossed the threshold into like adults and this is how adults drink. And, and we like, as you were describing that, like I could just, that's what, like, that's what I saw too. It's like, oh, well, look at me. Like I have my pinky up drinking my 15th Miller Lite. Like everything's fine. And then, yeah, talking about coming back home and I think there's you know, like every place has their own thing. I can I can definitely relate to it though when when you talk about Williston. You know, Williston has this just you know you were talking about the dynamic of it. I mean, there's the oil boom and everybody's busting their ass, working hard, and it's it absolutely is a a huge part of the culture. And it's there's it's a work hard, party hard sort of mentality to like another level. Yes, it, it really, really is. And it just, the normalization of it, it, it just, it was completely lost on me growing up. I did not know that other places, that just wasn't how it was. And then I, I have been a lot of other places, but when I was in those other places, I was drinking and so was, so were my friends. So it seemed like the world, that's just how it worked with drinking. It wasn't until I started being alone in new places where I was living, that it really was like, oh, these new people I'm meeting, what? That they don't start drinking at four or five and pregame before they go out. It's like, oh, they go out at like 10 o'clock and have their first drink. Shit. I mean, I'm I'm already a 12 pack in or a bottle of wine in by then. Yeah. Uh, one other thing I wanted to ask, you know, you mentioned um, when you had your your split custody, you know, the weekends when you were alone you're able to cut loose and just kind of do your thing. And I'm curious as to if you, you know, like when you had the kids, were you able to cut back and, and whether you were or weren't, like how did that, how did it feel? Were you observing like hyper-focused on uh, the amount of alcohol you could or could not have, like when you had your kids versus being able to just cut loose when you didn't? I didn't notice it right away at work and after work, there was always a happy hour out every day. And it just so happened that the bar was at my shop. Um, And it was a bunch of older relatives that during their time, before they all retired, 
they would come down and my grandpa would be working and that they would have a beer there after work, kind of banker's hours between like four and six. And it's kind of continued on and it's a tra- tradition for them that still happens. Um, and they watch Jeopardy every day at 4.30 and get really smart over um, <laughs> some whiskey and a beer. And so that was going on uh, back when I was working there. So I got to, of course, at four o'clock, stop my work day before I had to go get my kids, have a few drinks, and then go home and take care of the kids. And that's, I think, when I started drinking wine, because you could grab a bottle of wine and, oh, I'm just sipping on this bottle of wine. You know, it wasn't until probably a year or so getting a break from my kids every other weekend, I had them full time, that it really kind of started hitting me like, oh crap, I have to buy two bottles of wine. I better buy three bottles of wine for my nighttime because what if I run out? And oh my gosh, if I run out, I can't leave because I have the kids and I definitely can't drive even though the liquor store is two blocks away. So it it kind of started hitting me that it shouldn't bother me that much. I mean, just go to bed. What else is there to do? You're at home alone with sleeping children, you know, that are under the age of two. So they went to bed early. So yeah, I, I guess there was some there was control that was going on there. It was like, okay, I'll just get one bottle of wine because I can't go anywhere. So I'm going to control it that way. Mm-hmm. And then it was, okay, well, before I leave to go home, I better take a couple shots. And then it was, oh, better have two bottles of wine because, well, that's just how much I drank. And just more and more. And then it, it, it you know, it really dawned on me like, this is a problem. But I had every right. I had a tough life. It was stressful. I'm going to get through this. So yeah, I mean, it's it's nothing, nothing abnormal, I would say, but the progression was, it was, it was happening more, more quickly, I would say at that point. It's crazy how subtly that can sneak in. Like what, when we get to a place where we can finally take a look back and, and observe that escalation and, and how it took place and it, you know, starting with, uh, maybe I'll have a couple shots one day, or maybe if I get like an extra case of beer or another bottle of wine, it's these little permission slips that we grant ourselves is we, we don't see that as a gateway to developing a completely new routine or a new behavior. It's like, ah, oh, that worked once and it, things were fine. What if I, yeah. what if, what if I did it again? And then with, you know, almost without our consent, but also we've done this to ourselves. It it just becomes the new norm. Yes, really. And then, you know, physiologically too, um, with the effects of alcohol, get, being a f- fairly smart person and stuff like that, it's so funny that you can actually like look back and see like, oh, okay. You know, you they say you develop a tolerance and then your tolerance goes down and things like that. And it's like, why am I getting so drunk off of one bottle of wine? I can drink three and oh my gosh, I'd go out with my friends and it'd be like, okay, you guys, like I got to go now. Or I'm falling off the bar stool and I'm sleeping underneath the bar and you guys are going to have to come get me. Like it, it just would hit me like a ton of bricks sometimes. And it, it just, it, I had, I had no tolerance even left. I had drank to my, to my breaking point. I mean, I crossed that line long before I ever realized it with alcohol, but had convinced myself that it was either that I drank too many shots, you know, very normal. I feel like when you are drinking too much or okay i gotta go back to beer you know and then those things just don't cut it anymore but also 
you know, it's, it doesn't fix anything. And you just never, ever want to believe that you would, you would possibly have to stop. It's so funny that um, it seems so innocuous alcohol does. And it just, it really, it really isn't. And it, it doesn't seem like it's something that anybody shouldn't have control over, but so many don't. And even, even if you grew up watching it happen to somebody, it's, it's just still that hard to believe. Yeah, the normalization and just it's I mean, it is it's absolutely everywhere. And, it really is. Yeah. And we're smarter than the people that we saw have trouble with it. And we're more intelligent. And, you know, like all the things you were just saying, we become these alchemists where it's like, all right, I can figure out the correct portions of this and that so that I can still have a good time, but not get sick or not pass out or not black out. Like, let me find let me find the right recipe or or the way to control this and the the amount of logistical work put into ingesting a substance, trying to convince ourselves that we're doing it for fun when we're realistically, we're just, I mean, we have something internally that's breaking us and we're just trying to like slow that down or stop it or, or, or numb it. Yes. Yes. And I feel like for me, my life is just a series of dysfunction going on around me. And in one way or another, I was in the mix, you know, back in my drinking days and my dad was trying to get sober or my dad was, um, his, his actually drug of choice was painkillers. Um, he drank alcohol eventually more in later adulthood because painkillers got controlled more. And he, at that point, wasn't ready to go to heroin. And so then just watching him deteriorate and getting him in and out of treatment. I think me and my sisters put him in treatment like seven different times from our 20s to where we're at now. And my mom, I think maybe 10 or 12 times. So, so we, we, I always had a battle that I was fighting, you know, that wasn't my own. And I would put so much energy into that. And I was such a helpful person. And I was, I was very, very good at, solving other people's problems. So I didn't have to look inwardly at my own. And everybody was, you know, they were really, they, they had high praise for me for, for knowing those things, for being able to figure out the problems like with my dad and dealing with that and, you know, helping my aunt with this or that or the other thing. And, you know, just raising the kids or whatever. I, I was getting a lot of high praise. So it just, it got overlooked the whole, the whole drinking, you know, and then, and then big things would happen. I mean, throughout my life where I just really got a free pass. Like, I don't know if you remember, you know, the girl from our class that stabbed her mother and stuff like that. She was a best friend of mine. And, you know, it's like, so for years after that, it's like, I got this free pass of like, oh, you know, like I've just been having a really hard time. I was having a hard time, but I wasn't dealing with it in the right ways. Yeah. I was drinking, you know? And so there was all those things that, you know, I just kept getting free passes for that, that, it w were just such good excuses. And it was just a good way to hide anything because, you know, it's just, you just always have an excuse. Yeah. That was, you know, you knew my, you knew my brother and that was, yeah. that's one of the things that grosses me out about the last year of my usage was he passed away December of 16 and I sobered up the following August. But for that last nine months, like whenever my wife would try to be like, Hey, bro, what are you doing? And I would just look at her and say, your brothers are alive. Mine's dead. What the fuck? You know, like, what are you going to do? What are you going to say? And it's just, and yeah, of course, like, of course I was devastated. You know, we can, we can be rocked by these things, but what a shitty place to be, to feel like we have to like capitalize on 
on that. And that does, that does not leave you feeling good about yourself. No, no, absolutely not. And I, I feel like I was in many situations. Um, I remember when my grandpa died, it was, it was kind of the same thing. You know, it's just, I think maybe I got another DUI shortly after that. <laughs> I know one of my friends got a DUI going home from the after party after the funeral, you know, and it was like, oh, poor him. It's like, well, what were you guys doing? Like drinking after the funeral so much and having a party that, you know, that's what happened. And it's like, oh, my grandpa just died or, oh, my parents are getting divorced. Like I'm in my twenties and my parents' divorce did take a long time, you know? And it's like, I'm, I'm weeping in my beer and ruining my personal relationships with my now significant other who I'm raising my children with, like crying about my parents' divorce, you know? It's like, oh gosh, like, or I'm, I'm counseling my dad to go into treatment um, because he decided to turn to heroin and I'm wasted taking shots of whiskey. It's like, what is wrong with you? Oh, but, but my dad's so fucked up, excuse my language that, you know, I have to send him to treatment for the seventh time, but why don't I get drunk while I tell him he needs to go there? Yeah, I totally get it. It's just, it's just insane. It's a weird spectrum, man. Gary, I want to make sure we have time to talk about your recovery. So let's, and like what's been going on the last eight years and, and how things have shifted. So uh, let's walk up to that. You know, you had mentioned the date of July of, of 2015. So between that and, and January of, of 2016, just kind of what got you to that point where, where you were ready for the shift? So actually in so July 31st, um, so that was about a month after my daughter had was born, my youngest daughter, and I had gotten married to her father. And, it, you know, it, he, he could put down the booze. And um, so I was lucky I had a good, <laughs> I had a good partner. If I was drinking, he'd, he'd make sure we got home for the most part. And um, anyway, um, it was, it was strange because, you know, you're sober for the time that you're pregnant. And I got out of that pregnancy and it just, I, I tried to drink and it was just a disaster. I don't think I was happy. I mean, our, our marriage ended shortly after that, but yeah, we um, had gotten married and then we were going to have our wedding reception. And it had been about nine months since we had gotten married. And it was just kind of one of those things where they were like, you cannot drink anymore. You're just not doing well, whether it's just because you just had a baby and you can't handle it and you haven't been drinking. And so it was like, do we have our re wedding reception or not? But if you can't be sober, like we just, we shouldn't even have that party. And it was like, fine, I'm done. Like you guys think that I can't do it. Um, you know, it, funny enough, the saying, hold my beer and watch this comes to mind. <laughs> and, you know, that's kind of, that was, that was a lot of how, you know, people say you can't do it. And I'm like, watch me. And so, so I did, I quit drinking and I did, I think I drank like twice in between, July and January. Um, the first time was okay. It was it was actually pretty controlled. And the second time, oh wait, I did I drank three times. The second time I ended up going out and I was walking home and I ended up in jail because I wouldn't tell the cop where I lived. Not because I was driving, not because of anything, just because I was drunk and I was like, I am not telling you. And they were like, okay, well, this is not safe. You're in North Dakota and it's December. And we can't leave you walking around at 20 below, even if your house is two blocks away and you won't tell us we're going to jail to detox. And it was like, okay, well that sucks, but no legal trouble, just embarrassing. And I think like a week later, I ended up getting a DUI again. And that was where they were like, okay, you got to be done, done. And 
it was, if you don't do something, we're going to do something. We're going to send you somewhere. And I had been those somewheres before. And I just, I, I couldn't think of a way or a world where I would have to leave my kids for 30 days. And as much as I needed probably help to quit drinking, um, I needed more help to get my head straight, to get a, to get a good grasp on what actually was, was making me so unhappy and making me want to hide in a bottle to forget about it. And so being the problem solver that I am, I was driving around and I, you know, I was sober for about a week, I suppose. And I was just so sad. Um, I didn't even want to drink at that point, but I was, I was just sad because something had to change. And so I actually, I did an online treatment program and it was called Lion Rock Recovery. And I, I just was Googling. It's like, I've got to find something. I've got to find something to get people off my back. And so I called them. It just so happened they accepted my insurance. They're out in California. They set me up with a treatment program, did an intake. It was it was just like you would go to any treatment program. I would say that they are more uh, cognitive behavior, behavioral therapy based. They have meetings, they have AA, they have all of that stuff. But that never that never sat right with me. It's not that I didn't enjoy meetings. It just it wasn't the place that made sense to me for any sort of sobriety. So I, I actually really enjoyed the program. It um, it focused on, on what I needed, uh, the people pleasing, why I was doing the things that I was doing, what I was scared of. And, you know, one of the first things they do, and I think they do this probably in a lot of different treatment facilities is like, write your obituary. And what would people say about you right now? You know, and it's like, oh gosh, <laughs> you know, but I stuck with it. And it was uh, just a couple times a week on my computer. And I have been sober ever since. That's amazing. And, you know, I've heard of Line Rock. And I uh, I think I told you this when we saw each other a few weeks ago. I have a friend who, through hearing about it from you, I, I, I mentioned it to her. And it's, uh, what a cool place. To, you know, it's, I think we're moving in the right direction for addiction recovery and treatment. To be able to do something like that, to be able to do it from home and find the resources and 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 tailor something that kind of works with your life. Not everybody has the ability for whatever reason to to leave home and, and lock up. I really think for me, part of the hindrance in getting sober was the fact that um, around here, one when there isn't a lot of resources. I mean, they closed up shop on the the actual like inpatient treatment facility probably 20 years ago in Williston. So you go to Minot and it's it, there. I mean, you're in the mental health unit for a while. I don't know what their treatment facility looks like now. I would assume it's different, but I'd seen my dad in and out of the places in North Dakota, the resources that were around here. And it was, it was really institutionalized. It was really hospitalized. It was just something that I never, ever really, well, and I, I had been to it myself as well. And, um, I, I just, that didn't work for me. It also didn't work for me to have to call myself an alcoholic. And it's, it's, it's really stupid. I, I mean, it's just another name for things, but I, I just, I think growing up with my dad being an alcoholic and seeing all the, the shame that was associated with that, like the stigma and everything like that. Um, when he in fact was just a very sick person and it, you know, the mental health stuff that surrounds it and all of that, like, I feel like Lion Rock for me, was just more enco encompassing of it holistically. And and that worked. It wasn't, hi, I'm Carrie, I'm an alcoholic. It was, you know, from the beginning, hi, I'm a person in recovery. You know, I've been sober. I mean, you could be sober for an hour and show up. And 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 that worked for me. So, so yeah. Oh, seems like so long ago, but so not. 
long ago. I, I think I still remember some of those feelings. Um, after doing their program, though, it it was still hard because I was still in Williston. And I think the reason it worked for me is because it was it was self-led. It was more about when I got out, like self-care. What is what is it that I need? And giving myself the per- permission to get the things that I need. People constantly, and then especially once I had had kids, they were all, it always seemed like they needed something from me because I could figure things out. And, you know, I like that about myself, but I would do it to my detriment. Mm -hmm. And I think some of the things that uh, you're taught in different therapies and getting sober um, in general, the most important piece for me was always just like, no, it's, it's okay to say no. And it's okay to be selfish for yourself. You know, it's not okay to be an asshole. But, (laughs) you know, when it comes down to it, um, I learned really young from my dad, like with drugs and alcohol. I mean, if it's if you let it take over, it's jails, institution and death. And those are your options. And when you start looking at it like that, like I'm I'm going to lose everything, you know, even if you don't have much, like I'm going to lose my life and I'm not going to be able to do anything it just really starts to hit home. So I started taking care of myself and giving myself self permission, even if it was going to the gym, even if it was, I don't want to get out of bed today because Netflix is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) You know, if that's what I need that day, that's what I do now. And I, I have kids and a lot of responsibilities, so it does feel really awkward, but you know, I do it. And I, I, I tell myself and I still have to convince myself, you know, it's okay. Yeah. Amen. Amen to that, sister. Before before we jump into rapid fire, I just want to ask one last question, and it's uh, it'll be a challenge to sum it up quickly, but just what has, in the last closing in on eight years, what has this meant for, for you and your family, like your children, and also like your relationships? Just what, what has recovery done for those things? Recovery has allowed me to be okay enough with myself and what I want out of life to go and get those things. Like I had no roadmap of to happiness and I didn't even know what happiness looked like, but now I know I don't have to have it pinpointed on a map, but just living life. I'm, I'm actually living life now, family, having relationships. None of it is all easy, but even when I'm in the worst of fights with my kids, um, I'm in the most stressful situations the the instant that you know it's over or i have a second to myself it can be it can be done and i can think to myself but in you know i i feel like crap right now my life doesn't seem to put together but as a whole i can look at my life and be like but i'm happy i am happy and this is just this is a blip in the road and i don't think i would have that if you know i wasn't in recovery to to take even the worst of days and at the end of it, be able to be like, but overall, in general, I'm happy and we're going to get through this. So don't stress, really. Good word. Gary, this time has ripped by and we are at the rapid fire round in 30 to 60 seconds. I'm going to ask you to answer these questions. Are you ready? Yes. Great. What was your biggest fear as you were thinking about quitting drinking? That people would treat me differently that I wouldn't be able to be the life of the party or the funny one anymore or the strong one anymore. But I I still am. Most of the time people don't know when I'm out that I'm not even drinking. (laughs) Love it. 
What is a positive that you didn't expect in a life without alcohol? I would say that I can tell people no and not feel bad. I love that word. Uh, what is your go-to alcohol-free drink? I'm a big LaCroix fan um, or soda water of any kind with any mix. And I'm also just a straight up Mio caffeine with water person during the day. Always love to hear someone talking about LaCroix for that question. Do you have a favorite flavor? Uh, probably grapefruit. Thanks to my sister, Lindy. She, um, her and her husband introduced us to that quite a few years ago. Up, Lindy. Good mm -hmm. call. What's your plan in sobriety moving forward? My plan on sobriety moving forward. Well, I don't know specifically what my end goal is, but I would I would assume that I would just keep learning and doing more crazy things like firefighting and getting my pilot's license back. And when it comes down to um, the recovery aspect of it, I do want to get more involved. You know, I'm not I'm not a big oh here I am, come to me for advice. But I, I really like doing things like this and seeing the reach that it has. I did an interview like this for Lion Rock and I know of just four people in spe specifically that got sober after listening to my podcast and having resources. Um, I like to be a resource like that and I'd like to contribute more now that I've got such a firm base. I mean, eight years is quite a bit in the grand scheme of things, maybe not so much, but when you're in it, eight years seems unattainable. Yeah, you ain't shitting doing good stuff uh what parting piece of guidance can you give to our listeners who are either early in their recovery or thinking about getting sober i would just say that there isn't a roadmap to it necessarily you don't just have to go to aa you don't have to go to a treatment facility i mean you can go to a crossfit gym i mean i swear to goodness 99 percent of those people are sober <laughs> you can i mean you can start by running every day and you know even if it's running away from your problems it you just it doesn't have to be typical it has to be what works for you and there is no shame in trying to find what works for you at all if if one thing doesn't work find something else there's so many resources and so many people that you can find online nowadays and that's just amazing so don't quit just find something that works and last but certainly not least can you give listeners your favorite you might need to ditch the booze if line you might need to ditch the booze if you're constantly coming home with one shoe and you can't find that shoe no matter how hard you look you had a collection of left I feet i did I, in my 20s i think i lost probably five pairs of shoes to drinking and it didn't matter where i looked or who i called what place i was at the next day at a house party like hey i'm missing one shoe i mean it was multiple times ridiculous gotta be a clue carrie thank you for what you're doing Thanks for coming on today. I appreciate it. Absolutely. I'm glad we ran into each other again. And, you know, we can share in this uh, to help other people, really. Amen to that. Thank you, sister. Recovery Elevator, thanks for listening. And thank you, Carrie, for coming on the show. You're going to help a lot of people today. In the intro, we identified five different categories that our friends might fall into. But what about us? What type of friend are we? What do we bring to the table? I think if we take some time to reflect, we know what our strong suits are. And honestly, half the work of being a good friend is just being present, showing up and letting people know that we're there for them. We all have things going on, whether it's work, school, kids, or intramural dodgeball league, it's easy to get caught up in the hustle and bustle of life. 
without taking time to check in with the ones that we love. But I think it's important to carve out that time. One thing my friends and I like to do is to shoot a quick text every once in a while that simply says, pulse check. It provides each of us a chance to pause and do a quick scan of how we're doing and let our support system know how we are. It opens the door for us to show up for one another or just to let others know what we have going on in our day. This is one simple tool that helps start the conversation. What about you, RE? How have friendships been a part of your recovery? What ways do you show up for the people in your life? How do you and your friends keep that connection alive and active? Head over to our Instagram and let us know on this week's podcast post. We're the only ones that can do this, RE, but we don't have to do it alone. I love you guys.